everybody, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. So good to be with you as we study St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And just before we pick up the text of Paul's letter once again, I want to deal with something that we brought up in the last episode. We didn't really have adequate time to talk about it. And this is the topic of polygenism. You say, what is that, Kale? That's a $5 word if I've ever heard one. It has to do with the theory of evolution. As it became very popular after Darwin's time and scientists began looking into this, theologians started to question what are the ramifications for the doctrine of original sin, which we've been talking about in our last couple of episodes about Romans. So I think it's a good time to, to just take a breather for a second and talk about polygenism. And by the way, polygenism is the theory that there were different groups of human beings that sprung up upon the earth at around the same time, give or take, and that humanity may not have descended from one original couple, Adam and Eve. Okay, let's deal with this. What does the church have to say about it? Well, uh, in 1950, Pope Pius XII, sort of, you know, realizing that this kind of had to be dealt with, because evolution was becoming more and more popular as a theory, he wanted to make sure that Catholics knew what they had to believe to hold the Catholic faith when it came to this scientific theory. Now, there is no conflict between faith and science. I hammer this home all the time on this program and also on the Cale Clark Show. Science tells us how things work in God's universe and theology answers the big questions of why. Okay, if the Big Bang is how the universe was created, and by the way, the Big Bang theory was invented by a Catholic priest, Father George Lemaitre, who was also a scientist. So he didn't think it was incompatible with Catholic faith, and you shouldn't either. So science deals with the how questions, but only theology can answer the big whys. Why did creation happen at all? Why are we here? What's the meaning of my life, of your life? And so in 1950, Pope Pius XII wrote an encyclical called Humani Generis to sort of deal with this question of what we have to believe about creation, about the origins of human life. So here are some of the things that he said that we need to hold on to. This is what the church teaches, that matter was created out of nothing. In the beginning. This is the concept of creation ex nihilo, if you will. And Paul's talked about this, by the way, in Romans, if, if you recall a lesson from a few days ago in this series. So the church has pretty much left open the question of where the human body comes from. In Genesis, when it tells us that God fashioned the first man out of the dust of the earth, that could refer to a process. It is potentially possible to hold to a theory of evolution of where the human body came from. But you would have to hold this, though, to hold the Catholic faith, that regardless of how the body came to be, you'd have to hold that in the first human person, God infused an immortal soul. And that person we would give the name of Adam to. So this is a, an important piece. Now, again, some hold to this theory, some do not. There may be better explanations for it. I don't want to concern myself with that. All I'm saying is that it is potentially compatible with the Catholic faith. But you do have to hold in order to believe 
in Catholicism, that the creation of the human person in terms of an immortal soul being infused into the first man was a special creative act by God. He breathed a human soul into Adam. Very interestingly, in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, Jesus breathes on the apostles and makes them, in a sense, a new creation, gives them the Holy Spirit. Interesting. You also need to believe, and by the way, these are these are all tied together very, very nicely um, in uh, Scott Hahn's book in the Didache series, Understanding the Scriptures. He has kind of a little sidebar article on this. You also need to believe that woman was formed from the body of man, from his very self. Also, that all humanity is descended from Adam and Eve. In this sense, after the first uh, human soul was infused, Adam and Eve were created without sin, commanded to be obedient to God, but they, of course, sinned against this command. That's what we've been talking about, the original sin. And as a result, the human race fell from the state of sinless innocence. And that, even at the time of the fall, God promised a future redeemer. And you can see this in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I did read an article that was uh, posted by the Magus Center for Faith and Reason, of course, founded by the great Father Robert Spitzer, who's a frequent guest on Relevant Radio. And there, there's an article there that seemed to suggest that perhaps Pius Twelfth left the door open if there could be more scientific evidence garnered for polygenism, that it could potentially be compatible with original sin. I, I don't know. Um, some say yes, some say no. Uh, but like I said in the last episode, if you or I were in the place of, of Adam and Eve, we probably would have sinned even quicker than they did. So <laughs> it would potentially be possible that different groups of human beings could also fall into original sin. But at any rate, this idea of polygenism does pose a, at least a potential threat to the doctrine of original sin. Okay, so let's go back to, to Romans now. Let's look at the end of Romans chapter 5. At the very, very end, which we looked at last time, Paul says something that he knows is going to raise a lot of questions in the minds of his readers. So th this is one of the things that he says. This is in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He writes, law came in to increase the trespass. And again, this idea that once you know what the law is, and then you still commit the sin against it anyways, you're, you're more guilty. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So this, this is a statement that St. Paul knows is open to misinterpretation. And this is the whole basis of what he's going to say next in chapter 6. So let's take a look at it together. Let's read the first few verses here at least. Paul writes, this is chapter 6, verse 1 and following, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our former man was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin, but... 
If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay, so let's stop there at the end of verse 14 of, of chapter 6. So th this, is, this is intriguing. Um, I bet you probably never thought about it this way. L look at verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Every time you've seen a baptism, if you've been to a child's baptism or, or the baptisms of adults, we see this at the Easter Vigil very frequently, you've witnessed a death. <laughs> a death, and it's a very real death. A death and a resurrection as well. It's the death of what St. Paul says, the old man. He, he calls it the old man. This is interesting. The sinful body is going to have to die. This is the old self that's kind of uh, trained to sin and, and is uh, sort of under the sway of original sin and its after effects. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. So glad to be with you today. Now, one of the things that St. Paul says elsewhere in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he also says it later in Galatians 6, 14, something like that. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. As Brant Petrie says, well, when was Paul crucified? He was never crucified. Yeah, he, I mean, he had some very unfortunate things happen to him. He was stoned. Uh, he was beaten with rods several times. He was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. And at the end of the day, his head was chopped off. But he was never crucified, was he? Or was he? When was St. Paul crucified? The answer is when he was baptized. When he was baptized. Because that's when he shared in the death of Christ and also in his resurrection. Now, it's interesting because we don't always do it this way, but the, the baptism by immersion. Now, there are some places in the Catholic Church, and I've seen some Roman Catholic parishes where they do have Baptismal fonts are kind of like little pools, you know, they almost look like little hot tubs where you can, there's steps that you go down and you can actually be baptized by immersion. But generally speaking, well, we don't do it that way. We do it by pouring for the most part. But when you quote unquote dunk somebody, when they're baptized by immersion, this is a very big simple. And, and, and again, remember with every sacrament, what do we have? We have a sign that actually does do what it seems to be doing. And in baptism, we have a sign that actually does what it seems to be doing, which is to give grace, to give life. You know that water, of course, is a symbol of life. We know that we need water to live. And in the Semitic mind, in the Jewish mindset, water is also a symbol of death. So it's kind of got this double meaning. 
when you look at the sea, when you look at when you read read the book of Revelation, and we did this together on the Faith Explained our Revelation series, we saw that the the beasts, the monsters, if you will, come out of the sea, and this is a common motif in in, in Jewish scripture and literature. Water is unruly. It, it, it's it's a dangerous, dangerous place. When Jonah is thrown overboard and into the water, he needs to be saved. When Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, this is really when his passion begins. And Pope Benedict XVI, in his series, Jesus of Nazareth, in the very first book uh, that he writes, he talks about the baptism of Jesus. Really, his that's the beginning of his passion because he enters willingly into death when he is baptized. And he even spoke of his impending death as a baptism. If you read Mark chapter 10, let's take a quick peek at this. In Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 38 and 39, we read these words. Let me just look it up for you really quickly. Uh, He says this. He says, you do not know what you are asking. This is when when James and John are like, can we sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom? Can we have like positions of power here in your new cabinet? Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the chalice that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said, yeah, right. No, no, he didn't say that. But uh, read it for yourself. You can check it out. But this is the idea. He, he spoke of his own impending death as a baptism. And so when we do baptize people by immersion, and this is very common in the Eastern rites and in other uh, parts of uh, Christianity, of course, it really is a powerful symbol of the death and resurrection of Christ. That it, it's, it's a more full symbol. Because what we're doing is we are actually participating in Jesus' own death and resurrection. It's a down payment on our own future resurrection. And this is what he says in this chapter, which we just read. If you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Paul writes, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So as long as we stay in a state of grace, we stay connected with Christ then we're, we're still united with him. And what happened to him is going to happen to us. Yeah, we had to kind of share in the cross in this baptism. We died to our old self, sinful nature. And then, of course, we will share and we hope to share in his future resurrection. It's kind of this down payment. Now, people might ask, was there anything like this before, before Jesus came along? And we know about the baptism of John. And when, as I said, when, when Jesus partook in that. He submitted to John's baptism. That's really when the Christian sacrament of baptism was initiated because Jesus had no sin. This is a baptism of repentance for sin, but Jesus had no sins to repent of. So what's he doing? He's sanctifying the waters. The waters didn't do anything to him. He's sanctifying the waters and giving them the ability to wash away sins. But even before John, even before John in Jewish tradition, there was something called the ritual cleansings, the ritual washings. And there are these little pools called mikvah or mikvahot is the plural. And you had to descend into the, into the water to do ritual cleansings after various things. And if you were really wealthy, if you're really well off, you had your own mikvahot in your backyard or part of your home, uh, just like you might have your own pool or hot tub or something like that. Well, I've seen this. When you go to Magdala, you see you can see the ruins of the ancient village of Magdala and some very wealthy people there, you can see had their own mikvah. You could see the steps going down. But this, this cleansing had to be done again and again. But John 
What was different about John's baptism is that it was kind of a once-for-all deal, this baptism of repentance. But then Jesus takes it a step even further. It doesn't just symbolize repentance. In Jesus' baptism, guess what? It can actually wash away sin. And the, the sinful man is destroyed. Well, if that's the case, why do we still have this concupiscence? Another $10 word. Why do we still have this tendency towards sin, which is kind of the after effects of original sin, even though the guilt of original sin is washed away, imputed guilt. We didn't do anything. Adam and Eve did. But why do we still have this? Well, as Petrie says, it, when you look at the lives of the saints, their lives are really cushy and easy, right? They just lived on easy street after they were baptized. No, they didn't. Of course, they had to fight. They were persecuted. They, they had to suffer. They had to enter into the suffering of Jesus Christ, just as St. Paul did. We have to do that as well because we have to fight against the tendency to go back to the old ways. We've got to join the fight of Jesus against sin. And this is part of how God sanctifies us. So it's part of our soul-making exercise, if you will. And this is why Paul says here in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not yield your members, and by that he means the members of your body, to sin as weapons of wickedness. But yield yourselves to God as men and women who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons of righteousness. Now that is pretty impressive stuff right there. He says sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And then he's going to kind of bring in this analogy of slavery. Uh, we'll, We'll look at this in the next episode, but I really like this term weapons of righteousness. You don't want to use the parts of your body as weapons of wickedness. And, and that's what we do when we commit sin. That's what we do. But you have to understand that the body is not evil. There were many false teachings in the early church, like the teachings of a group called the Gnostics. They said that anything in creation is evil and only that which is truly spiritual is good. Hogwash. As we'll see later on in Romans Chapter 12, verse 1, St. Paul says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is where theology of the body comes in. Our bodies are good. They were created to be good. They were created to serve God and honor God. And use them as weapons of righteousness to bring about good in the world and righteousness, not in sinful ways and sinful manners. So that is really important for us to understand this. And this is exactly why St. Paul says, Look, we died to sin in our baptism. Yeah, yeah. you could say, people might accuse him of saying, and they did accuse him, he said this back in chapter 3, of saying, well, you know, the more we sin, the better God looks, because he just gets to forgive even more, and it's even more impressive. Paul says, no way, I don't do that, I don't teach that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? No, we, we're dead, we're, we're living the life of the resurrection now. And we need to use our bodies as weapons of righteousness. Got to leave it there. We'll pick it up in the next episode of The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio in our series on Romans. But don't go away now. Got a really fun thing to talk about in our Q&A mailbag coming up right now. Let's open up The Faith Explained mailbag right now, shall we? And you can send me your question. I'll try to answer it on the air. You can email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. All right. 
Today's question comes to me by email, and it's from Heather in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Of course, the home of the great University of Michigan, the Wolverines, the big house, all that stuff. And she's listening in her house. I don't know if it's a big house, a small house, but she's listening on Apple Podcasts. And that's an important thing to know, that all of our shows on Relevant Radio, like The Faith Explained, are put out, of course, as podcasts on the Relevant Radio app. Some people don't have that. They listen to Spotify. They listen to Apple's, Apple Podcasts. I think they should get the Relevant Radio app. But you can tell your friends, hey, we are everywhere. We want our podcast to be heard far and wide. So Heather asks me this question. Why is music so important in our public worship of God at Mass? Okay, well, that's, that's, that is an important question because, um, of course, if we go to daily Masses, uh, there's really not too much music going on. Uh, there might be a little bit, depending. But it's usually without any extra frills, as, as it were. People are going to work, and it's a little bit more stripped down. But, of course, Sunday Mass, generally speaking, uh, there is a musical element. And really, this is very biblical. This is very biblical. And I'm going to give you 10, sort of my top 10 verses on why music is important for worship. So let's let's just kind of go through a couple things. Let's start with the Old Testament, number one. Look at the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms are really the worship book, the, the song book of ancient Israel. We talked about the Psalms in a recent Q&A, a lot of them written by David. It was called the poor man, the, the rosary was really called the poor man's Psalter. Uh, in the or in, as it got going, as as devotion began to spread and people began to pray the rosary, because of course, don't forget that all 150 psalms were prayed uh, by monks, by nuns, in religious life. Anyways, Psalm 150 says this: "Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people, sing to Him." Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. Okay, so this uh, psalm talks about things like giving thanks, singing, singing praises, glorying, rejoicing. Why? It's because the people are to remember the wondrous works that the Lord has done for them. And that, that should cause them really to break out in song. All right, well, here, here's another verse. Now, we're going to flip to the New Testament now for this one. This is Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. You've heard of John 3, 16? Well, of course, here's Colossians 3, 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, so the, the, when, he, when St. Paul talks about there, the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, at this point he's probably talking about sacred tradition before everything got written down. Uh, in scripture, and not all of it did get written down in scripture. Some of it just continued on as, as oral tradition. A lot of it's contained in the catechism. But not only the words of Jesus, but teaching about him that was passed on. And this idea of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that's, that's one way to teach one another. Because corporate worship does help us to learn things about God. It's not just it's not just praising God, but there's a theology there, especially when you look at the Psalms, that we can really pick up on as well. 
So this is really, really important uh, in the time of St. Paul. All right, let's look, at, let's look at another verse from the Old Testament. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. This is, this is a good one. It says, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. All right, so what's going on here? This has to do with the Ark of the Covenant. How, how are they worshiping and, and celebrating before the Lord? Well, they were actually doing it very, very close to the Ark of the Covenant because the very presence of the Lord rested upon the mercy seat. And remember, in the depictions of the Ark of the Covenant, you can see images of this. You've probably seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. There are these angels on the top of the Ark with their wings extended. And that's where the quote-unquote mercy seat was, the very presence of the Lord. And you can, you can read about this, by the way, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. But this um, verse in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5, this kind of shows that, that when people were near God, they couldn't help but break out in worship and song. And this is, this is very important. And it talks about some of the in instruments that were used here. Uh, lyres or lyres and, and harps and tambourines, castanets. I, I don't know if they use castanets at your local parish, but that's probably something like maracas or something. I don't know. It's hard to really know what these things were. But the Psalms contain all kinds of references to uh, musical instruments. And, uh, but, the, but the word castanets is actually only here in, uh, interestingly enough, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. It kind of means shaking, to shake. So that's, that's, what, that's why I think it's probably something like a maraca or something. I have no idea. But at any rate, um, this is important, another important verse of, uh, of worship in the Bible. Okay, let's, let's flip back to the New Testament for a second, kind of going back and forth here. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. This is the fourth verse I want to mention here. St. Paul says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, speaking in a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Well, Paul is talking about the need for order in worship. And when the early church worshipped, they didn't have public buildings. The, the faith was illegal for quite some time. They worshipped in private homes, house churches, if you will. But sometimes it could be kind of a kind of a hodgepodge, just kind of a mess of different things going on all at once. It's like, guys, let's do this in an orderly fashion. And some people came with their own hymns. Maybe they had their own worship songs that they sung. But this was really important because there is all kinds of little songs that, that are even in the New Testament. If you read Philippians chapter 2, it's known as the Carmen Christi, the song of Christ, how he descended into human life, if you will, the incarnation, and even subjected himself to death on a cross. And really, if you read these verses, it's, it's, it's like a song. It's very, very poetic. Paul is most likely quoting an early hymn of the church. And this helps to build you up in your holy faith, Paul says. It's not just the teaching. It's not just the preaching, but it's also the singing and what we can learn from our songs and psalms and hymns and all kinds of stuff like that. So, all right, we're, we're going we're gonna to pick this up in the next episode. We'll go back to this in the next Q&A, some more biblical verses on the importance of music when it comes to worshiping God. But again, you can send me your question for a Q&A mailbag segment on The Faith Explained. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. That's the email. Find me on Twitter slash X at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. Share this with a friend. Please share this episode. Spread the word. 
And I will see you later today also at 5 p.m. Central for The Gail Clark Show, only on Relevant Radio. God bless you.